love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on me. Your love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on me. Your love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on me. Very nice to be with you. I'm Mark Tranvik, and I wanted to say thanks first to Natalia for inviting me to come be with you, and Chad as well. I appreciate the invitation. Uh, it's always a privilege to come and talk about Martin Luther. Uh, it's the 500th anniversary of the Lutheran Reformation, and uh, so we're going to celebrate Luther a little bit in my remarks tonight, my sermon, but it's, I, I hope it's a sermon as well. It's not just a history lesson, but also I th- I'm a preacher. I served down at Cross of Glory Lutheran Church for 10 years in the 1980s and the 1990s, so um, I'm an ELCA pastor as well, so I never just teach, I also preach, and I think you might see that that is the case in what I'm about to say as well. also want to shout out to uh, Brent. Brent was one of my students, at our students at Augsburg College, and you're very blessed to have him. I mean, he's, he's very talented, gifted, and uh, um, you should be thankful he's in your midst. Uh, I'm sure he's doing good work here, so it's fun to, fun to see Brent again as well. I also want to bring you greetings from my community of faith at Augsburg College, and I ask that you keep the, keep the colleges of the church in your prayers. Um, we think it's really important at the colleges of the church, all of them, not just Augsburg. We keep faith and learning together. We say faith without learning tends to get rather superficial, and learning without faith can be rather arrogant. So we want them both and together in conversation, and we hope we do that in the colleges of the church. That's the goal. We want, the, we want a lively conversation between faith and learning going on. So your support and your prayers for our, for our colleges are deeply appreciated. Okay, let's get underway. Um, and because, like I say, there's some preaching here, too. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going to talk about Martin Luther today, and I'm going to talk a little bit about Luther's, what I call Luther's radical God. I don't think we quite appreciate how radical Luther's God was. And let me see if I can make the case for you today. Um, there's a famous hymn. You guys know this hymn, I'm sure, right? My song is love unknown, my Savior's love to me. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. It's a beautiful hymn, and that's a beautiful line that I think, even though it came after Luther, um, I think it expresses well what Luther was really all about in his view of God and who God was. So... Let's go back, way back. Luther, we're talking way back in the 16th century, right? So back in the 1500s. Let's just get a brief sort of sense for his own context. And his context was a church that was in charge and in control. And also, it was a time when there were really two classes of Christians. You had two levels of Christians. You had Christians who had vocations. They were the monks and the nuns, and they're on the left up there, right? They're the ones who had really dedicated their lives to serving God. And so they went into monasteries and cloisters, and they took vows of poverty and chastity or celibacy and obedience. And they're the ones who had really forsaken all to follow Christ. So they're a little closer to God, right? Okay? And then you have on the right, the people are kind of left behind. The lay people, right? They're kind of on the ground making things running, but um, they're really sort of second-class citizens when it comes to the next life. The folks who have vocations are the monks and the nuns, and that's Luther's world, all right? Um, here's a picture of Luther's parents, actually. His father on the left was a, 
was a miner. Um, uh, actually came to be fairly well-to-do later on in life, but early on worked in the mines. His mother um, kept the house. But again, careful, when we say kept the house, um, that's a freighted term. I mean, she was a, she was a very talented woman as well. Um, keeping the house meant um, keeping the farm going, um, keeping a, 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 a brewery going, keeping a, a orchard going, um, milking cows, um, making sure things ran. So it was a very busy, hectic, active life, besides, of course, raising children as well. But just to sort of emphasize the point, neither one of them had vocations. They did not have callings because they had not, right, become monks or nuns and dedicated themselves to a life of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Luther didn't have a calling at this time either. He had no vocation in the understanding of the 16th century. He was without a calling as well, all right? So kind of keep that in mind as we move on. So Luther's story, and some of you know it. I'm not going to go into great detail, but basically by the age of 22, he's finished his regular schooling, and he's going to go now into graduate school. And the first graduate school he goes into is law school, because he wants to kind of please his father, right? He figures, well, if I become a lawyer, maybe I can get enough money later on, support my parents in their old age. That was kind of social security in the 16th century, right? Uh, he'd make a name for himself, make his father proud. His father was a miner, spent a lot of money and time trying to save up enough for Luther to go to the law school in the first place. And Luther goes to law school. But he only goes for a couple of months. And he reports when he's 22 years old, back in, way back in 1505, he's out walking in the exposed countryside, and he's in the middle of a thunderstorm, and he thinks he's going to die. It's one of those storms. It just sort of collapses around him, right? And uh, he's very worried, trembling. He falls to his knees. He prays to St. Anne, and he tells St. Anne, St. Anne, if you save me from this storm, I will become a monk. I'll have a real calling, right? Storm passes. Luther lives, and now he's made a vow, a vow heard by God, right? So he couldn't quite go back on that. And therefore, much, much to the displeasure of his father, he leaves the monastery. uh, I'm sorry, he leaves law school and enters a monastery. Just what his father did not want. In fact, he didn't even consult with him. It was not a happy time in the Luther family. All right. So he enters a monastery in the German city of Erfurt, a pretty strict monastery, and he has now a vocation. Uh, there you have a picture of Luther as a monk, right? And he also, when he went into the monastery, he took a vow, the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and he also was told that not he who begins, but he who perseveres to the end will be saved. Think about that. Not he who begins, but he who perseveres to the end will be saved. It's up to you, Martin Luther. It's on you now, this path that you have chosen. We'll come back to that in a moment. So Luther is a monk. Luther's routine in the monastery, right? He worships seven times a day. Think about that. Hmm? Midnight, three in the morning, six in the morning, right around the clock. That's what monks did. He confessed his sins every day. He wore rough clothing, right, to kind of subdue the body. Uh, He fasted for long periods of time. He beat his own body. Um, And again, Luther tried to be the best monk possible. And again, sometimes when people talk about the monastery, they assume, well, that was all works and no grace. Not true. There was grace everywhere in the monastery. Luther regularly heard that his sins were forgiven. He regularly took part in the Lord's Supper. He heard the Bible read to him. Grace was everywhere. But see, the key point was, Luther was told that he had to do his part. 
okay? Grace will start it. Grace would do most of the work, but it's up to you kind of to fill in the rest, huh? You have to do what you're able to do. And that's what's stuck in Luther's craw. Because he said, I'm, I'm, I'm in, in, in the face of the holy God, the mighty God. How much do I have to do? Can I ever do enough? And this drove him crazy as his time went into the monastery. It became a very, very dark moment of time because he was never, ever sure whether he was good enough. He kept trying and trying and trying, but he always seemed to fall short. His conscience would never let him rest. We'll skip that because we've got to keep going here. He's always climbing, right, in the monastery? Huh? Climbing, 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 climbing. And, of course, the result for Luther is either complete exhaustion, which it was. He was spiritually exhausted. And another thing happened as well. Loneliness, anguish, despair, feeling forgotten. So you have the great irony here, right? Luther enters the monastery with the help of grace to get closer to God. So he thinks if he does such and such, he's going to get closer and closer and closer. But the gap's only wider and wider because he feels like he's never done enough. And now he becomes to, he comes to the point where he actually feels like he's been forsaken by God. That God has abandoned him. And this becomes a very, very dark moment in Luther's life. Here he is supposed to, supposedly taking on this vocation or calling supposedly live in this holy life, and he feels anything but holy. In fact, he even begins to accuse God of being unjust and unfair. Huh? He thinks God has turned against him. I want to suggest to you, and this is kind of making a connection with our lives and our time. I know we're talking about something 500 years ago, but maybe it's not so unfamiliar. Okay, And one of the ways I use to sort of link Luther with our present time is to talk about something called the performance principle. The performance principle. Luther is always trying to make himself better, right? He never felt he could do enough. I'm suggesting to you that in our day and age, we get caught up in the same kind of thinking. The performance principle, our core identity, who we really and truly are, revolves around our looks, our brains, our income, our status, our perfect family. Let's take a look at each one of those and see how well that works. Our looks. I mean, look at me. I'm 60 and I'm decomposing in front of you. As I, I mean, <laughs> for heaven's sakes. I mean, my goodness. Really, your looks? I know our culture puts a lot on looks, but we all know that's kind of a losing battle, right? Okay. Our brains, there's always someone smarter. I know a lot about the Reformation. I've written books about the Reformation, okay? A couple, three months ago at Augsburg College, we brought in a speaker on the Reformation, a scholar from a famous university in the United States. And I was listening to this lecture, and it was beautiful. It was gorgeous. It was well-crafted. It was learned. And it started to dawn on me, I could never do that. <laughs> there's no way I could do that. You know, and in other words, the point being right, there's always someone smarter. There's always, I mean, we're, we're often feeling like we're sort of, you know, um, um, just trying to kid each other anyway, right? Anyway, our income, do you ever have enough money? If you only get a little more, things are going to be okay? Oh, right. It always turns out that way, doesn't it? Huh? Okay. Our status, there's always someone coming up from behind. Um, can you ever maintain your status? The anxiety of that. You retire. All of a sudden, you don't have status anymore. What does that mean? You lose your job. 
Your perfect family? Who has a perfect family? For heaven's sakes. Come sit around my dinner table when my kids were at home. and my wife. Nothing perfect about that. It was pretty messy. Huh? Let's face it, the illusion of a perfect family and whatever that means. Again, all these things, if you put your, if you, if you put your core identity at stake on these things, it's gonna let you down. It's not gonna work. We get caught up in the same thing, right? We get caught up in earning who, earning our true identity. Our core identity revolves around these things. Not that different from Luther's struggle in the monastery, really. Then I have another thing up there about social media. I'm not really picking on millennials. Sort of, maybe, kind of, but not really either. Um, Think about social media and how pervasive that is. Here's the problem with social media. 30% of the students, according to the New York Times, that are in college have problems with anxiety to the point where they're getting medication for it. It's a real huge issue, and I see it at Augsburg all the time. Part of the problem is social media. Think about it. Think about how how the cell phone works. It's a personal highlights reel, right? Here's, you, you get messages all the time. Somebody's taking a trip here. Somebody got a new this. Somebody got a grade like this. Somebody, somebody, somebody. And somebody's not me. Like, no wonder we're anxious. And of course, it's not just millennials. It's everyone. It's part of this culture. It's the, per, it's the performance principle all over again. So I want to suggest to you, isn't Luther's time, yeah, a long time ago, but maybe what Luther was looking at, the issues he was facing, aren't that unfamiliar Keep moving. But this whole big idea that, you know, we're kind of squeezed and we get caught up in this performance principle and we're not what we're supposed to be and we're certainly not what God has called us to be. huh? And we're not very good neighbors either. We're anything but free. We're captive. And what Luther, what liberated him, were verses like this as he read his Bible, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not the result of works so that no one may boast. You see, Luther's problem in the monastery, and this also then becomes his liberation. He begins to understand it's not about imitating Jesus and being like Jesus. It's rather Jesus has done something for him. Like we heard in the children's sermon. This whole idea of love. Jesus has done something for him. The love of God does not find, says Luther, but it creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of man, the love of woman, right, comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. Kind of complicated, but the next line makes sense of it. Therefore, sinners are attractive because they are loved. They're not loved because they are attractive. Let me read that again. It's crucial. Sinners are loved, right? Sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. Huh? Key verses for Luther. God made him to be sin who knew no sins, that we might be the righteousness of God. And what we just read, you see at the right time, when we were yet powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. So God's love for the unlovable. Here's how Luther became, came to think about it during his time in the monastery. And this was what created his liberation from this captivity, right? I mean, he, he, he started to think about himself, right? being a sinner, and then he thought about Jesus and Jesus' words on the cross. Especially the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mysterious words, right? Found in both Mark and in Luke. My God, my God, why have you cut me off? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you forgotten about me? He didn't just say it, he shrieked it, he screamed it. Okay? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Luther starts thinking, Why would Jesus say such a thing? He had a good conscience. He's not like me, always coming up short. 
How come he said such a thing? And the moment of clarity comes when he begins to realize Jesus said that because he took all the sin of the world upon himself. Think about what that might mean, folks. Put all the sin of the world, your own, your neighbor's, of course that's more sin, right? No, right? But put it all on one person, as if that person had committed them. What would it feel like to have all the collected sins of humanity on one person, really and truly, as if they're feeling that they really committed those sins? Would you shriek? Would you scream? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And see, for Luther, this is the key point. If his sins on Christ, if he feels forsaken, if his sins on Christ, then it's not on me, says Luther. If the sin's not on me, that means I'm free of sin. If I'm free of sin, I'm righteous. I'm loved by God, not because of what I do, not because of my performance, not because I've earned it or merited or deserved it in any kind of way, but because it's in in God's nature to love the unlovable. Folks like you and me. And that's what's radical about Luther's God. Okay, This is something that comes undeserved, unmerited. The world doesn't work that way, right? We live in an if-then kind of world, don't we? If you do something, then you get something. That's the way the world works. I'm not condemning that. That's just the way things are. But you see, God operates by a different kind of logic. It's not if I do something, then God will love me. It's rather, God has loved me in Christ. And because God has loved me, therefore I'm going to love my neighbor. One of the ways I talk about this a little bit is going back to my own family. Some of you know, we have two boys, Anne and I, and they're grown now. But when they're about five years apart, when they were younger, Saturday morning was chore time, right? And so we get up in the morning, and uh, so I ask you to sort of think about it this way. We've got to mow the lawn, wash the car, take out the garbage. So I say to Isaac and David, you know, chore time, time for you guys to get that stuff done Saturday morning. Now, what if they were to say to me about this? What if they were to say to me, Dad, we'll do those things if you promise to love us. I said that to one of my classes this morning. And an African-American kid in the back row just shook his head. And excuse the language, but I think he's absolutely right. He goes, man, that's effed up. And he's right, isn't he? I mean, in other words... What a strange way to think. I would be heartbroken if my sons came up to me and said, yeah, we'll do those things if you promise to love. You think my love for you is dependent on whether you do those things? You're my guys. I love you. I'd do anything for you. That fierce love of a parent for a child? Oh, my goodness. Nothing can come between that. So it's not about you, right, doing those things to earn my love. My love is prior. My love is deep for you. But now... Get out there, mow the lawn, right? Cut the grass, wash the car, take out the garbage. We've got to live together, right? So, again, it's because I love them, therefore you do those things. Those things happen. That's the world of vocation. So people ask Luther, well, if we don't do any good works, then isn't that dangerous? Is there nothing to do? And Luther said, no, good works aren't for God. Good works, God's doing fine without your good works. God doesn't need them, but your neighbor needs them. Take a look around. Your family, your workplace, huh? your friendships, your community. That's where your good works belong. 
Luther thought that that love unleashed in the world would be a powerful, powerful force. So God's love for the unlovable, and then the unlovable turn and unleash that love in the world. Huh? Luther's core belief then. We're made right with God by our faith, not by our works or efforts. Right and good works then are now for your neighbor. They're for other people in the world. Good works are only for this life. That's where they belong. God doesn't need your good works, but your family, your friends, your neighbors are the ones who need them. And I'm not going to go into this because I've been going on. To, I'm starting to preach too long, sorry. Uh, I know it's, it's Wednesday night, it's casual, and here I am going on and on and on. But the point being, of course, after Luther gets this main insight, then just to kind of go back to history, what he does is he challenges the ways of the church because the church was basically saying you can earn or merit God's salvation. And they did that through the selling of indulgences, right? And so Luther protested that in 1517. That's why we're celebrating the 500th anniversary in 2017 by pounding the 95 Theses on the church door at Wittenberg. And, of course, that opens up a gap between him and the church leadership. They were not pleased with Luther, to say the least, right? There you have the picture of him pound from the Luther movie, pounding the Theses on the church door, um, just so you can see why Luther got in trouble. Here's some of the things he said in those theses. All those who believe themselves certain of their own salvation by means of letters of indulgence will be eternally damned together with their teachers. Didn't mince words, did he? Yeah. He wasn't blaming the common people. He said they didn't know any better. The leaders should know better. They read their Bibles. They should know God's forgiveness isn't up for sale. And if they teach that, they put their own souls in jeopardy, he said. And then Christians should be taught that one who gives to the poor lends to the needy does a better action than if he purchases indulgences. Again, not a popular teaching with the church, right? Okay. So Luther finally, come, this conflict with the church comes to a head at the Diet of Worms in 1521, all right? And he is excommunicated or thrown out of the church. And that, to his surprise, becomes the beginning then of the Lutheran movement, and you know the rest of the story. Some of you, he's kidnapped for a while by his prince, kind of kept from harm for about nine months. And then he finally returns to Wittenberg, a small city in Germany, where he's a preacher and a teacher. Uh, he also gets married. He marries a nun who left the cloister for him. So you got the ex-monk and the ex-nun getting married. Can You can imagine that. Yeah, Created quite a scandal, as you might imagine. It's radical, man, this love. Think about it. Think how radical it is, seriously. I don't think we quite, we domesticate Luther too much. Think how radical that, all the things he did, but especially that move was in the eyes of the people of the 16th century. And for the next 25 years then, he would nurture and um, 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 shape the Reformation. By the way, Luther and Catherine von Bora, Katie, they had six children together. They adopted four orphans. So think about that, a household of ten children, plus it was a place of refuge for people fleeing persecution, um, um, it was a remarkable place. And Catherine von Bora often gets sold short. I could go on and on about her as well and what a remarkable force she was and how important she was in the Reformation. There you have a picture of both of them, Luther and Katie. And I'm just going to suggest to you, right, we're talking about now for Luther. Everyone now has a calling in life. It's not the monk, the nun, the priest. You all have callings in life. Right? That deal about mowing the lawn, taking out the garbage, washing the car? Huh? That's, your, that's, that's what you're called to do. 
propelled forth by God's love, you have callings then in the world. You have callings in the vertical column, in your family. You have a calling to yourself, to take care of yourself. Friendship is a high calling. You have a calling in your community as a citizen. Hmm? Local, state, national, global. You obviously have a calling here at Prince of Peace. And in work. Vocation is not just work. Vocation is 24-7 across the center there. It's now. It's always. Like I tell my students, what's your calling right now? And they'll go, I guess it's to be a student. Exactly. Your calling, your vocation doesn't start when you leave Augsburg. You have a calling right now to be a student. Now you've got to go and be a roommate, right? And now maybe you've got to go serve on a committee or be in, be in the band or be on a sports team. They're all callings. Calling is ordinary. It often isn't easy. There's a struggle involved. We follow Jesus Christ, too. Let's forget. Let's not forget there's an edge to this calling, right? Jesus crossed lines. He went to unpopular places. He included the excluded. He went to the outcast, the forgotten, the people who get shoved to the margins. Sorry. That's exactly whom we're called to go to as well. That's part of the deal here. If you're going to follow Christ, that's where you get sent as well. So you better, better make sure you ask that question. How well are we taking care of those who typically get excluded? That's what it means to follow Jesus of Nazareth. So our calling's right. So giving you a sense then of how Luther then envisioned vocation now for everyone and for the entire world. And then <laughs> I'll end shameless self-promotion. I, I, I have a book out called Martin Luther and the Called Life. And it's basically a catechism on vocation. And I, I'd, I'd encourage you to take a look at it. I donate the profits from it to my church to its adult education program. So um, I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not uh, benefiting from it personally. But I think you'll find some of the ideas that have been expressed here, especially this really important notion of vocation. What am I to do with my life? What am I called to do? It gives you some ideas, I hope, for thinking about that. So Martin Luther's radical God. It's ra- think of Luther as being in the grasp of this radical God, this radical love, and how that love then changed him, propelled him out in the world, And that love, by the way, is a love from Jesus Christ to you here tonight at Prince of Peace as well. Please think about this. Amen.